ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. in somewhere in rural Pennsylvania in a secret location where there could be a lot of social distancing. Uh, we're just delighted. We're thrilled. Mazal Tov. Mazal Tov to Yaakov and Gabi. Wish you lots of uh, It's amazing. What a, what a great thing. Anyway, we have such a great... Parshat HaShavua, he can't go to war for the whole year. Bonus. This Parsha, it, it, it raises the issue for, for us, you know, so much to talk about. You know, I have this thing where I, I send out selected shorts to my shul uh, every Shabbat, and there's just so much to choose. So we're just going to go at random here, choosing things ra- randomly, you know, try and make our way through the Parsha. The beginning of the Parsha, Shoftim Vishotrim, justice, ju- judges and magistrates, you shall place in your... Uh, give to all of your your communities, basically. And then, of course, the iconic verse, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, Leman, Tichyeh. Can you offer just a, a, some reflections on the pursuit of justice, the centrality of justice in Torah, and the centrality of the pursuit of justice in Judaism? Barry, let's start with you. Okay, so I'm s- struck by the contemporary political message in the phrase Shoftim Vishotrim, which is translated as officers and officials, judges and officials. But Rashi's comment is that a Shofet is a Zayan HaPoseket Adin, a judge who decides the law, and the Shoter is HaRodet HaAm Achar Mitzvatam B'Makel U'Veritzuah Ad Sheyikabelov Din HaShofet. The show terror is the enforcement person, the one who, in the language of Rashi at least, will beat the person so that he will accept the court's judgment. And what resonates for me in light of our modern political situation is that a judicial system, a justice system, requires a police force. You cannot do away with the police force because someone has to enforce the law. It can't just be left to judges to decide the law or the people to accept the verdicts. We need some enforcement mechanism. And the discussion then has to be on what limits we want to place on them. But I think the Torah clearly understands that a a police force and enforcement mechanism is essential to the justice system. Are you saying you're not for defunding the police? No, I am saying that. Yes. Yeah. We, well, what you're saying is that there's a necessity for the enforcement mechanism. Right. I think the discussion has to be not about defunding the police, which I think 
my politics aside is ridiculous, but <laughs> what limits we want to place on the police. Yeah, yeah. And that's an appropriate discussion for anybody politic. And for a police force, of course. Yeah. Jeremy, Wayne. You know, um, I, I think Barry's comment is, is really interesting because the Torah is a, a document for an ancient society where it really was a guiding political force. And one of the interesting features is that um, Judaism, as it has been inherited, uh, is really, it's not that it is non-political, but that throughout all of its elaborations since the ancient times, uh, it had very limited enforcement mechanism. So I, I totally think you're right as a, as a, a description of the meaning of Shoftim V'Shotrim and the fact that the Torah expects this to be actually put into practice and enforced, uh, including all kinds of elements in, in our Parsha about punishments and floggings and, uh, and executions and fines. And it's also true that almost always throughout its time in, in history, Judaism uh, as a religious practice has, has acquired its power because people have agreed to be part of it. In, in a book that came out last year, maybe the year before already, maybe it's two years now, but uh, a, a Villanova law professor called Chaim Simon, who is a, um, you know, grew up as a from guy going to, as he writes in the book, Nair Yisrael in, in Baltimore. Um, one of the things that he says, the book is called Halakha. And one of the things that he says about Halakha, uh, which we all translate as Jewish law, he, he said, you know, it doesn't really capture, because of this thing I'm saying now, because of the voluntary commitment to it, because so many elements in halacha are about meaning and beauty and, and as we said very before we got on uh, the call, before we started recording, so many of them are hypothetical cases that are not practical at all, that are, the, that are like, you know, thought puzzles, that really Judaism, Torah uh, should be translated more as teaching than law. And I think that that's, that's true as I experience Judaism. Uh, this passage is more about enforcement, but really we don't have a whole lot of enforcement in Judaism as practiced. Well, wait, they may, look, the assumption is that they're going into the land here and that the land requires uh, a government. There, this is, uh, I would put out the proposition that in many ways, these chapters in Shoftim and later on, we're going we're gonna to obviously talk about them, they offer a proto-constitution to this, this uh, infant you know, uh, country. This, this, there's an apparatus here that is being uh, designed and that the apparatus of government requires magistrates and police. Uh, look, we're going we're gonna to talk about a king in, in a few minutes. Um, this is the way that a, a polity is going to be governed. We need the, this kind of apparatus. Otherwise, you have complete anarchy. And, and, and uh, you know, Barry, you want to talk about this. The, the, you know, I would say that seeing in Deuteronomy some of the kernels of American democracy and, and, uh, and uh, constitutional government. What do you so uh, what I would like to add is there's a suggestion in the verse, I think, that speaks to the development in civilization as well. Because when you need a police officials to enforce the law is when you're at another level of civilization. In the old tribe system, you didn't have a necessarily a formal police. You had someone who took care of things. But now that you have... Uh, a uh, more developed society, you need 
people who can take on these roles. Talk about this first tzedek, tzedek tirdof for a second. You want to share some of your interpretations? Justice, justice, thou shalt pursue. So it's, it's always been a curious verse, the repetition of tzedek, um, of justice, which we often translate as righteousness. So it sometimes occurs to me that maybe, you know, we use the same word to mean two different things, that maybe the Torah here is using the same word to mean two different things. Yeah. That we need both justice and righteousness. And then we can connect it with a verse that precedes it, verse uh, 19 of chapter 16. That the judges are admonished not to distort justice, not to show favoritism, and not to take bribes. And only bribes is given the reason that bribes blind the eyes of the wise, and twist the words of the righteous. And I think there's a cautionary tale here that a lot of times we think that the tzaddik and the chacham are the same person, then maybe they're not. Yeah. And that they have different kinds of strengths and weaknesses, and they're susceptible to different pressures from the society that they live in. It's, it's really important that, I think, in, in the rabbinic certainly as, as the rabbis understand the Torah that they've inherited, um, that they, ha they have a really strong um, uh, inclination to think that people can understand the world and think people can arrive at the truth, that people can, can sift evidence, that they can have witnesses, they can darashta v'chakarta hetev. If something is reported to you, well, you've got to check it out and you've got to examine all the evidence. And it's not... I mean, I personally, in a religious context, in the, in the spiritual realm, believe that there are realms of mystery, but in the realms of law and the realms of governance, uh, whether it's in the, you know, the, the highly, the, the polity that you guys are talking about, or the more voluntaristic concept that I have, those, those things are, in those realms, ascertainable. And one of the functions of judges is to, like, really, you know, trust, trust their intellect. Um, I'm not happy in, you know, certain of the, of the kind of modern... Uh, the, the problems of modernity, you know, about, about for example, the history of the Tanakh as a document or evolution or science that, that we find our, our far right, you know, brothers and sisters in, in this religion, you know, they, they want to say that, you know, who are you, who are you going to believe? The Torah? Are you going to believe God or, or your own two lion eyes? No, no, you actually, in this religion, we believe that people can Darashta vechakarta hetev. You can you can you can examine and you can discover and you can get the truth. And so therefore, you're responsible not to put your thumb on the scale to to take a bribe because those things you know are yisalef divrei tzadikim. They do distort they distort what is righteous. You're talking well within the rabbinic tradition, obviously, which which is is a tradition that is based on on this kind of analysis, this kind of, of application of justice. I, I, I'm recalling the, the comment that is made, the, I forget, you know, where in which tractate, right? The, the repetition of the word tzedek, 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 it's because there, there are different kinds of species of justice. One which is a verdict, you are guilty, not guilty. And one which is, you know, we, we get into the back room and we negotiate. And in negotiation, it's not that there are winners and losers, but in negotiations, there is a, it's, a, it's a means of attaining a different kind of justice where we can resolve disputes 
with people, both people feeling, uh, both parties to a negotiation feeling that they've won something and they've lost something rather than feel, mm-hmm. you know, the pure sense of, of guilty and not guilty. I, I, I like what you said very much. The, um, just as a, as a side point in the Talmud curriculum at the Heschel School, where my kids have, have gone, um, that the sugya of shara in, in Sanhedrin of, of compromise is one that they always do with the kids. And I've, so I've, I've been through this sugya with my, with my right. children quite a few times. And, and it really is such a deep matter because the, the one who says, as Moshe says, Yikov hadin et hahar, let the law pierce the mountain, means you cannot lie. If I say you owe me a hundred bucks and you say you owe me nothing, well, you don't owe me fifty bucks. Okay, that's a lie on both counts, right? Either it's a hundred or it's not. is is not fifty, and yet the other position is that social peace requires a little bit of eliding the truth. Yeah. If, if you're going to say tzedek tzedek here, dope, it has to be the truth, then you're you're not going to have social peace. We we hear now no justice, no peace, and in, in you know protest yeah. life. And there's something to that, but it's also going to, if you're going to have shalom, you're going to have to have uh, a little bit of flexibility about contentious issues. All right, let's change gears for a second and we'll go to the the king. We have the passage in chapter 17, uh, again, a constitutional passage. When you get into the land, and you will say to whoever, Asima Alai Melech, I want a king. I want a king. Like everybody else. You shall certainly have a king placed upon you that God chooses from among your people. And there are some qualifications. One, shouldn't have too many horses. Shouldn't take the people to Egypt for the sake of increasing his, uh, his stables. Uh, and then, lo yarbelo nashim, shouldn't have a lot of women, a lot of wives. How many? Well, what does it say here? doesn't give you a number. No, but the, does. in the rabbinic tradition, it's 18. Okay? 18 wives. 18 wives. I hope all of our listeners will put this into practice. No more than 18. If you're a king. If you're a king. If you're a king in your own home, 18 wives. Okay. And then, you know what, for, for us, the the Jeremy, you want to talk about this for a second, that the king should have a copy of the Torah with him. The king has to write the Torah, and the implication is, whether exactly it's all Deuteronomy or the entire Torah or some selections thereof, the king has to sit down and write the Torah because that's how you're going to inscribe it in his own character. That, you know, the, the book of Deuteronomy generally is um, suspicious of overmuch, you know, human affluence and power. It thinks that you'll, that you'll grow um, really ungrateful. It thinks that you'll puff up, your, puff, up, puff up your ego. And nobody is more susceptible to that than a monarch. Um, I don't know if there are things that we've seen in our own contemporary life in the United States that might suggest that people who attain positions of political power just really need to gratify their own ego to be reminded that they are the leader and they're the boss. Um, so the, the way the king is restrained is told, you have to read the Torah and you have to write the Torah with your own hands so that you keep the proper proportion 
and, and the recognition that this is not about you, this is about the people and the people's covenant with God. It's like Moshe, Moshe throughout the various times that God has said, that's it, I'm going to kill these people, I'm going to start again with you. Moshe has always said, it's not about me, it's about your covenant with this people. And, and a king, political king, is not that likely to have that consciousness unless it is impressed upon that ruler. Very well. So the the image here is that you should soar low small that you're not supposed to deviate to the right or the left, but you have to take the straight and narrow path as it were. And the image that comes to mind is of a a tightrope walker who for obvious reasons can't go one too much one way or the other. And what seems to be connected with the previous passage about the horses and the women and the money is that these are things that distract the king. And I think that, you know, perhaps the women piece may be misunderstood. Why should the king not have so many wives? Because these are all alliances, right? We, most of these marriages are going to be political marriages, and you can have too many alliances. You could try too much to finesse everything. You know, life sometimes you just have to live. You can't anticipate everything. You can't work everything out. Sometimes you just have to get up in the morning and go about your business, or I guess if you're the king, the nation's business. And it's a great, it's great advice that you should walk this narrow path and that you should not deviate. So Elliot, you always ask us the question. So I'll, I'll, I'll send one your way here. This, there's a famous, there's a famous sort of uh, debate in Judaism about whether Som Tassim Alecha Melech is a mitzvah, appoint a king, or uh, if you want to appoint a king, this is how you should go about it. Do, do you think that the Torah is looking at this kind of rulership as uh, an important element in governance or a concession to Am Yisrael's failure that it would be better if we didn't have such a king? I think, I think the history of the Bible bears out the, the second, which is, which is that it's a concession if you read the book of Samuel, and it, it's painful, you know, you have the pathos for the prophet Samuel, who, who the, the, the people are just begging, begging for a king. And, and he says, what have I done for you? What have, you know, have I not you know, led you well enough? And, and there seems to be a sense in this passage of betrayal, that, that if you select a king, it's a betrayal of, of the prophet. And, and in a way, it's, you know, you, I see this as a, the evolution of a political maturity within, within ancient Israel, that, that they do, you, you can't, you know, continue living on uh, uh, with an economy of, of shepherds and agriculture. At some point, you know, you're going to need a state. And, and, and this is a recognition that at some point you need a state. What, what, what I find fascinating, equal to, to Barry and to, and to you, Jeremy, it's, it's, you know, there, there's an element of proto-constitutionalism here, which is that, that he's got to be adherent to a document and that you can't rely on the king to invent it as he goes or to create his own constitution. There has to be something that he swears allegiance to. This, this is, I think, you know, part of you know, a certain architecture in, in, in a constitutional uh, regime where... where you're constantly looking to something outside of yourself and that, and that your responsibility is to the document, which is uh, ordained by God, and therefore it's the representation of, of the divine command. 
Um, and that's what you're, you're subservient to. And it's also to teach you reverence and to teach you what your place is. I'm, I'm, every time I read this, this passage, I'm reminded of the anecdote of, of who's a Justice Thurgood Marshall, who always carried a copy of the Constitution in his pocket. Here's a Supreme Court justice, you know, carrying the Constitution because in case he forgets or in case he misread or in case he has to reread something. And, and there's something quite profound about that, that, that humility is the goal here. Uh, and that the leader has to be a humble person. Um, and that I think extrapolating from that, it's not all, it doesn't only apply to the political leader but it applies to every leader in every system where leadership is being executed. You know, whether it's the constitution of the organization or the mission of the organization, you always have to remind because you can get carried away. And I think that this is really at the core here. A person uh, who is in power can really be carried away by their own, by their own charisma and by their own power. Here, take over. <laughs> dangerous stuff, dangerous, dangerous stuff. Um, so it goes to the mission of the Jews in some way, uh, the, this idea that you're going to appoint a king like other nations. So how much do we want to be like other nations? And how much should we be guided by what they do? And how much do we stand alone? That's you know a, a constant question within the Jewish community. Look, I think it's playing itself out in Israel today. I think, I think that's, it's oh, one it's of the central existential questions of, of the state of Israel. Do we want to be a nation like every other nation? The original Zion? Right, but what happens is, I think, and the, this is why it's good to read the Torah every year, is we forget that the questions that we think most exercise us are new. And in fact, they're as old as the people. Yes. Right. This was a critical problem in the ancient world. How should we rule ourselves? And you know, speaking of the point you were making before, you know, this passage in Deuteronomy separates the king from justice. Yeah. Right? We're not going to have the king's justice here. We're going to have shoftim. We're going to have judges. And it's a limit on the king. And that's an important piece because I happen to be particularly uh, enamored of medieval history, uh, European medieval history. And there the king, you know, I'm, I'm reading uh, the third of Hilary Mantel's trilogy on Thomas Cromwell. You know, the, the king is his own justice system. There you go. We, ha we have this too. Melech Lodan Velodaninoto says the Mishnah that the king is outside of the system. The king is neither a judge nor can be brought before the judgment. I think that there's some awareness that political power in its relentlessness um, is not really compatible with what we are trying, what we, quote unquote, the rabbis are trying to accomplish with a, um, a, a, a system that, that describes the world axiologically in terms of values. There's a, a really interesting feature of, like um, we were talking before the call on about how, how strange Jewish criminal procedure is. Uh, in Jewish criminal procedure, you have to warn a person before they're about to commit a death penalty crime and they have to say, yes, I know, and that's why I'm doing it. I hope I will be subject to the death penalty, which obviously is not a description of how, uh, how any criminal actually behaves. And uh, and so as a result, as as maybe familiar to some of our reader, readers or listeners, uh, there is an assumption that like the death penalty is a theoretical part of Judaism, but not real. And and you know a court that that puts somebody to death once in seven seven or perhaps seventy years is considered a bloodthirsty court. It just never happened. And and there is, however, in um, halacha, 
um, something called Din Melech, which is the king's justice, which is seen to correct the things that the law in its purity cannot wrestle with. Uh, because the, you know, in the reality, the rough and tumble reality of, of the world, it doesn't always conform to justice as we think it should be. And sometimes this is, I mean, I'm using this in a modern idiom, but sometimes the king has to crack heads because if not, um, unscrupulous people will exploit the, the sort of uh, naivete of a legal system that tries to be holy. What, you know, about the, the other side? what about the other side? Does the king have the ability to pardon? Of course the king does. You know, the king can commute a sentence. In every, in every, in every uh, judicial system, there's a, there are overrides, at least, you know, non-dictatorial judicial systems. I guess. I'm, not, I'm thinking you know, about we, we, Well, we can see that that, that too is a, is, a, is a system that has a lot of pluses and some minuses. Uh, we got some minuses as practically uh, practically applied nowadays. Hey, can we? I I, I want to yeah. you know make sure that our listeners know that there's a number of incredible important incredibly important passages and meets about in the parsha. There's so much to talk about. We're not going to get Go to it. Take take your take your shot. There's shot there's the mitzvah of my phone's ringing. There's a mitzvah of um, baltashchit. When yeah. you're in a siege, you can't cut down the fruit trees. That's just wanton destruction. Chapter 20, verse 19. Yeah. So, so tell it to us. If you are setting a siege to a city for many days, do not destroy its trees. The, exercise the axe on it. Because they're you eat from them. Uh, translate. That's no, that's impossible to translate. Is either <laughs> what is a is is a tree a person? You're, you're in a war. You're trying to kill the people. You're not trying to kill the trees. Or perhaps it's something like um, no, no. Uh, the the tree is the person. The tree is about tree's life is valuable. You can't destroy them wantonly. Or perhaps you know you you can you can cut down certain trees to build a siege wall or to prevent guerrilla fighters from being in them. But um, that, that, needless to say, that, that mitzvah of not wanton destruction has been um, a, a source of inspiration to modern people who care about ecology and the environment to realize there is so much wanton destruction in, um, in, in the way we live in the world. Right. It um, also seems to speak about a certain war ethic. It's not, the Torah doesn't come out in favor of, say, of carpet bombing. Right. And, you know, one of the things that we sometimes forget is that the way the Torah conceives war is, except for the cherem, the, the war that's going to bring the people to conquer the land, there's no all-out war where you become so consumed by what you're doing that you destroy everything. And the law about letting the trees be is a recognition that the trees should be able to survive the war, regardless of what may happen to you and your fellow combatants. Can we take a moment and talk about the last uh, item in the Parsha, Egla Rufa, and the, this uh, particular case of um, finding a dead body? Um, so at the very tail end of the Parsha, there is a, what's going on on my phone here? It's probably a telemarketer. Um, the, uh, the very last element in the Parsha is 
that a dead body is found between two towns and neither of two towns can, you know, is obviously responsible. Um, the person is found in, in the, in the open field. And so the closest town goes to the Wadi and, and kills. They have to measure, they have to measure the distance. You can measure, measure the distance to figure out whether it's, it's closer to uh, Highland Park or to uh, East Brunswick. Um, and, and Jersey. The closer to Huntington or what's near Huntington? Plainview. Plainview. Um, and they, they behead, uh, animal sacrifices killed from the throat. In this case, they behead the animal, chop off like in uh, Apocalypse Now from the back, and they pour its blood down the, the wadi, and the, rich, the people of the town ritually say, um, we did not... Uh, spill his blood and we have no knowledge of it. The idea is something like um, there has to be recompense for a life lost if the people cannot identify an actual manslayer there's a kind of an expiation ritual um, that declaims you know that there's not responsibility. I was thinking about this because of course crime has been for most of the last 20 years just Falling, 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 very, very much decline. Um, and I certainly know, and then people who lived in New York through the 60s and 70s have a very different experience than people who live here now, but crime is actually rising again. And that lawless sense that um, there's, you know, there was actually a shooting uh, right near my building. And um, uh, it's a little, little disturbing and scary. And there's a sense of lawlessness and anxiety. and that that feeling of oh my god somebody was killed and murdered and i can't do anything about it the ritual of the egla arufa serves a cathartic function psychologically i think for the people and also um uh, some sort of uh, the fancy word would be apotropaic or something like that it it, it serves to expiate the this innocent blood so, well, uh, the, the, oh, go ahead. i'm reminded of heschel's comment that some are guilty but all are responsible so the ritual, the Agla Arufa, is a means of taking responsibility because all blood that is spilled has to be answered for. There, there is pollution. The blood is a pollution of the land. Right. And um, we often lose sight of the fact that uh, you know, there's a great poem by John Donne about how every man's death diminishes me. Most of us really don't feel that way. And we should. And it's something that's worth cultivating. That this idea that if we believe everyone is created in the image of God, then everyone deserves an element of sanctity in the way that we deal with them and all that happens to them. And that's even the victim of manslaughter. That, that there is a requirement of of justice, but that justice cannot be obtained in in this uh, in this circumstance. And so, in the course of the parsha, it also says, "This is a this is a mitzvah that's a little hard to, to grapple with, but it's very important in this theme." It's, it's you know uh, that the that the witness to a capital crime has to be among the executioners. Yeah, like you you're saying, Barry, about the, the that great Heschel quote about uh, in a free society, all are guilty. Uh, not, 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 Some are not guilty. all are guilty, but all, all are responsible. If you are going to say, if you're going to walk into a court and say, you know, I saw Cloney do a crime, you have to be willing 
to then not turn it over to the king to administer what may be violent punishment. You have to take that responsibility. And that's intense. That is intense. You know, I'm not just telling the police, here's what happened. I'm effectively saying to the police, I'm going to partner with you in seeing the justice be done. I just want to add one thing um, as we conclude. Tonight is the first of the Hebrew month of Elul. And it begins our high holiday preparation. We're going to begin saying Psalm 27, which is easily in the top five of the 150 Psalms. Um, and it's worth thinking about as we talk about responsibility in the community, our own personal responsibility as we prepare for the Yamim Noreen, the high holidays. What a, what, a, what a good way to, to put the bow on this. That uh, Yeah, Rosh Chodesh Elul, first Elul, we're going to sound the shofar with a, a surgical mask on the shofar if we're doing it in public. And um, we're going to get ready. We're, we're, we're now on another journey, turning point to another journey in the Jewish year, on the Jewish calendar, in this extraordinary situation. And we've brought the journey through Parsha Shoftim to its close. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have these conversations and to share Torah with, we have like dozens of listeners now. It's amazing. There's even a Facebook group that's devoted to Parsha Talk. That is so great. We, we love you. We got to start selling merch. Absolutely. <laughs> Parsha Talk. So great as always. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom from Rabbi Kamanovsky and Rabbi Barry Chesler. I'm Elliot Malamud. Have a great Shabbat. After the wedding, next week.